my first experience where I realized that I was different was in the neighborhood. I think I was probably five or six. Like I said, it was only white kids in the neighborhood, right? And we all just hung out, we played. And I remember the boy two doors down who I always played with had somebody else there at his house. And the little boy was like, I'm not playing with you, you're black. And I remember going home like in tears, like he won't play with me because I'm black. Like, what does that even mean that you won't play with me because I'm black? Hi, we are Colleen and Colleen, and we have made it our mission to spread kindness and make everyone feel like they belong. So each week we will share real life stories, motivating insights, and helpful tips that will inspire you to live a kinder, happier life. We believe that together we can make the world a much better place. Are you in? I'm in. Let's do this. Welcome to the You Fit Here podcast. Hello, everybody. This is CS. And I'm really excited to welcome you to today's episode. This is a place for absolutely everyone. Uh, Today, I am really excited because we have a very special guest. And I wanted to have a deep discussion with her because she is a strong voice in the Black community. I am white privilege. I grew up in an obvious and predominantly white community The schools that I attended were predominantly white, although I never would have thought about it then, but it's very obvious to me now. And I just want to learn for myself, CB and I want to learn for our business, and the people who are tuning in clearly have an interest in learning, and she has a lot to offer. So we we preach kindness, and we talk about the importance of spreading it, but that's just not enough anymore. Our messages are taking on a new meaning as we're learning about everything that we can do. And so with that, I'd like to introduce you guys to Jean. She's a mother of two, a strong female presence, and a wonderful influencer to the younger generation and especially within the Black community. So Jean, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What a a glowing introduction you gave me there. (laughs) Oh, well, of course. I mean, you are a glowing person and presence, truly. I I thought you you would be perfect for this because you're just, I just think that you have so much to offer. And anyway, okay. (laughs) So I just want, I want to start with your upbringing. You went to St. Andrews in Indianapolis, Indiana. Can you talk about what that was like growing up as a young black female? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, wow, St. Andrew were, was probably the best days of my life. I, I shouldn't say that. Cathedral was awesome. Um, but as an adult now, um, looking back at my St. Andrew days, they were awesome. So I am biracial. My mother is white. My father is black. I have always um, identified as biracial understanding that that is, particularly in today's society maybe, um, that I've had a Black experience, right? Um, I've had a Black experience from a (laughs) fair-skinned Black woman perspective. So I think that that's always important to share with people. But St. Andrew was all Black, right? So um, I actually grew up like until I was in eighth grade, I think. Um, We lived in Irvington and there were no Black people anywhere in Irvington. So like the kids that I played with in my neighborhood were all white. Um, My father is an only child. My mother is one of 16. So, so, you know, I didn't have a lot of, or any, I didn't have any young cousins or anything on my 
on my father's side, but I have a ton of cousins. I think there's 40 some odd first cousins on my mother's side. So it wasn't until I went to St. Andrew in second grade that I really had like, oh, look, there are black people here. Like there are black people and I'm one of them. And this is, you know, my reality. So I went second through eighth grade at St. Andrew and it was such a family. Like everything that a family is, all the good, the bad, the dysfunctional, it was such a family. And I cannot ever recall a time at St. Andrew um, as a St. Andrew Charger that I didn't feel loved, challenged and loved. I had, it was my first time I had black teachers. I don't think that most of my teachers were black, but I had black teachers. Uh, We were taught black history. (laughs) We were taught about just pride in our blackness, even from our our white teachers, right? Like to this day, um, there are white teachers from St. Andrew that are very important parts of our lives. Like my nephews go spend um, weekends with one of those teachers and like to this day, like they were one of the few people that were invited to the little makeshift graduation that we did for them, you know, since they're 2020 graduates and who knows what real graduation will look like, but they were, you know, she was one of the people that we invited to this very, very small special ceremony because that's how important those people were to who I am today and really setting the foundation for me learning how to use my voice. Oh, that's really, really cool. What was that like for your mom? I mean, did did you have a lot to teach her or did she already? Um, I think my mom learned through experience, right? So it's just now in these days that I think maybe in the last couple of years, maybe since I've, I've rejoined, you know, my new position, um, I think it's just in those last couple of years that maybe I've taught her something, right? Like my mom is just the dopest woman ever, super loving, super caring, and for sure mama bear <laughs> on all levels. So because St. Andrew, the parish was a very... Um, a very mixed community, like there were white folks and black folks, and and that's just what it was. It was the school that was all black, right? So um, she was an integral part of that community, like serving on parish council and things like that. And so, you know, I've never asked her, how was it? That's actually a good question. I should probably ask sometime, but I don't know. She, My mother has always been very secure in knowing who she is and knowing who we are, right? And that probably helped my sisters and I establish who we are because we are who we are. This is what God made us to be. And she understands that the world sees us totally different than she does probably on a lot of, um, on a lot of things. And she understands that and supports that and really, really, really supports me using my voice to, to speak to truth to power, to what a black experience is. That's exactly what I'm hoping for today. And killing it so that <laughs> having gone to a school where it was all black you said no no white, white folks okay I don't remember any so students. as a child did you experience racism for sure um for sure and I don't think I knew that it was racism necessarily right I think the racism I didn't feel racism at, at St. Andrew I can I can think of times when I experienced colorism at St. Andrew, which, you know, is a whole nother topic, but, um, racism was not what I felt there. 
I'm telling you, every corner was all love from my recollection. Um, it wasn't until you were outside of that or um, I think my first experience where I realized that I was different was in the neighborhood. I think I was probably five or six. Like I said, it was only white kids in the neighborhood, right? And we all just hung out. We played. And I remember the boy like two doors down. And it was a bunch of boys, too. I remember the boy two doors down who I always played with had somebody else there at his house. And the little boy was like, I'm not playing with you. You're black. I was like, what? This is be- I think it was before St. Andrew because I didn't get there till second grade. And I remember going home like in tears, like he won't play with me because I'm black. Like, what does that even mean that you won't play with me because I'm black? Like, okay. So I think that that was like my first recollection of something that was like um, in the realm of racism. You know? What about then after St. Andrew's at Cathedral? Um, predominantly white. Talk to me about that. Yeah, imagine having a culture shock being <laughs> being biracial and still having a culture shock when you go to a predominantly white school, right? Right. And it certainly was a culture shock, not even like in a bad sense, just like there's a whole lot of white folks around here everywhere. Like <laughs> white people everywhere. <laughs> I think there were like 15, 16 black kids in my class total. Um, so it's funny because I tell kids all the time, like, you have no idea that, like, you get to see Black people everywhere. Like, that was not my experience at all. So it made the community within the cathedral community much more small and much more special to me. Um, I certainly, I don't know that I experienced a lot of, I guess when we talk about racism, I think people think overt things, like the little boy saying, I can't play with you because you're Black. Yeah. Um as an adult and as I have learned more, I can realize that, oh, what I experienced were those like really subtle racist things, like the microaggressions about my hair or about being, you know, why are all the black kids sitting together? Well, guess what? There's just a small number of black kids. You didn't ask why are all the white kids sitting together? Like nobody asked that. Um, So those little subtle things, I remember I don't remember it hurting so much, but I do remember the stories of my peers or seeing how my peers were treated, particularly those um, darker complected peers. And I was like, whoa, this is not, this is not cool. We can't treat people like this. Like, and that, and that stains and it sticks with people for a long time. You know, I'm 20 plus years out and there are people who were older than me who still recall those stories and how it hurts to this day. I mean, those are formative years. And when you're you're in a space where you're generally loved, those those stings, those burns, they they last a lot longer when they're from your own people, you know? Yeah. So it's it's different today, I would say you work at Cathedral and it's still predominantly white, but a little more diverse. Is that right? Far more diverse. Yeah far more diverse. I I don't even know. I listened to the statistics for, I I think it was, I don't even know what kind of, there's all these days that you do when your kids go to high school and I just can't recall what they're called, but you know, about just different, different faith and, and upbringings and schools and races. And and Mm -hmm. I was really impressed and excited about that. Do you feel like looking back, there was a main misconception about 
black people by the white kids in high school? That's a good question. Maybe looking back, I think that people, and I actually think that people think this today too, that that black people at this predominantly white school are either on some sort of tuition aid or like some sort of secret affirmative action plan. Yeah, or like everybody's from the hood. That's not the case at all, right? Like I didn't live in the hood. My school was in the hood, but you know, that I came from, but I didn't live in the hood. My most of my friends didn't live in the hood. Now there were some, but I do think that that's kind of the the perception from the internal community. Now, external community, I think people think that everybody has money. Right? So, oh, you're the rich black folks. You got money to go to that school. Well, no, you know, my parents sacrificed tremendously and I did need help. So, um, I think the internal community is like, oh, you probably have a really rough life, don't you? And then external is like, oh, you're living large. Like, you can go to cathedral. So, it's very interesting that there are those two perspectives. Um, but yeah. I do think that sometimes people still feel that same way today. Okay, and and you would know because you're you're in the thick of it, working at the high school mm-hmm. where you, and I. I mean, obviously, I'm super proud. Um, to just, uh, I just hope that anything that you have to offer can just be heard by anybody that cares to change and learn and grow. Because that's exactly yeah. what I was hoping for, and you're mm-hmm. just awesome. Um, so you are. Correct me if I'm wrong the Director of Philanthropic Engagement at Cathedral High School in Indianapolis. That is correct. And recently, our mutual friend, Colleen, not CB, but the other Colleen who we sometimes mention, she created a video, and it was your idea, the two videos, the Black Girl Magic and the Black Boy Joy. And I've watched them, but I'd like you to tell our, I'll link them, but I'd like you to tell our listeners about why you had that idea and about the videos. Yeah. Well, let me not take full credit for that because um, the Black Student Union at Cathedral, they are in charge of, the students um, are in charge of putting together the annual Black History Assembly, right? So, you know, late, December or mid-December or whatever, we start thinking about what, okay, guys, what are we going to do for the Black History Assembly? And um, I'm one of the co-moderators of that club. So um, sometimes it's really heavy history. Sometimes, like this year, it was all about celebrating Blackness and the joy that is Blackness, right? So um, they came up with the theme of Black Girl Magic, Black Boy Joy. And I saw, I think on YouTube one time, just in, or it came up in one of my social media feeds, um, somebody just candidly asking Black men, like, what is Black Boy Joy? Because Black men are not generally um, perceived as joyous um, human beings. There's a lot of dehumanization that happens for our Black men. Um, so when we talk about Black Boy Joy, it's important to hear what that means from our men, our young men. Um, Conversely, Black Girl Magic was coined by a sister several years ago, like the hashtag. um, And it was just celebrating everything that's wonderful about being a Black woman. Um, and And I hear that from kids all the time. Like, I mean, we celebrate Blackness all the time. That's important for people to know that Black people celebrate Blackness every single day. Like, it's not a special occasion 
But it was really important for me to try to encourage the young ladies, like the things that we say about ourselves in these safe spaces that we have amongst ourselves, like the whole world needs to hear that. Like the whole cathedral community needs to hear that. And it takes, um, when you're the minority, it takes an incredible amount of bravery sometimes to be able to say, this is who I am and this is how I celebrate me. So um, the girls were a lot easier. You know, boys are a little more talented. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. The girls the girls were, were easy. I had to be like, okay, we have enough voices right now. Um, the boys, it was like, hey, we need your voice. Like, I see your joy. I see you laughing and silly and dancing. Like, I see that in my office. I see you in the courtyard doing that. I need you to tell that, like, tell, tell the world. Um, so I'm so glad that Colleen, first of all, Colleen's an angel, you know, this. <laughs> um, but I'm so glad that she is in the building and was able to capture that in like a really meaningful way. So yeah. So black girl magic, black boy joy. It's just a celebration of blackness. And I'll share the links cause they're great videos. And I love, like you said, that's bravery. And I'm thankful to those young adults for sharing their, their voices. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe it's needed now more, but I'm glad they did it when they did it. Yeah. Because that's what was being celebrated. And that's really cool. Yeah. So <laughs> having watched the videos, I feel like questions that I didn't even know I had were answered. And and I don't know what that's a reflection of. Maybe it's just I didn't really think that much about it. But like specifically, an example of like black girls' hair. And you mentioned that too. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I can. <laughs> so, and I've <laughs> shared this a couple times within the cathedral community specifically. But so black hair is seen as other, right? Like it's a mystery because the majority population your hair doesn't look like mine, right? Your hair doesn't. Um, So when I say that people ask like, can I touch your hair? Like, what would you think if somebody was just like, hey, can I touch your hair? Like, that's weird. Like, I'm not a dog. And it happens all the time, right? So it's not just like a one-off. You have some new fancy hairstyle or something that would be considered completely out of the realm of possibility for hair to do. Like, that's natural that people be like, wow, that's kind of cool. Like, how'd you do that? But I mean, just my natural hair that grows out of my head is often seen as like so fascinating. So I really had to balance within myself, like just general curiosity because of it's something different than what other people have experienced and a boundary of I, I'm a human. I'm a regular person. This is my regular self. Like, can we please stop talking about my hair? Um, and especially as a professional, um, and it takes a lot of growth and a lot of courage to say, this is my natural hair. This is how it grows from my head. And you all majority population, you get to wear your hair as it naturally grows out of your head. And no one questions that. Like no one questions, is it, is it disheveled? Is it, are you washing it? Is it professional? But for Black women, that's that's a constant battle. Do I straighten my hair to be more um, accepting 
to so that my my peers, my colleagues see me as a professional or can I wear my natural hair in its big, beautiful state and still be taken seriously as a professional? And it was interesting because I mean, not not interesting for me because I, I see it and I live it. But for our young people to say like, oh, the boy behind me keeps talking about my hair. He says it's too big. He can't see. Well, this time my hair grows out of my head naturally. So maybe we need to adjust how the seats are. So that me being my natural self and not assimilating to the majority population is not seen as a distraction. That's another thing. Black hair is always seen as distraction. And I guess it is distracting if you're the majority population because it's something new. If an elephant walked down the hallway, that'd be distracting because it's something new. But I think we need to make it so that black hair, black culture, black people are not fascinating. It's just normal. It's just a normal part of the family and your hair looks different than than you know any other person's hair might look any other day and that's that's okay. That's cool. I mean, of course if you get a new haircut, a new hairstyle, sure, ask me. I think one of the biggest takeaways I've had about my hair cuz I really just started wearing my natural hair in its curly state, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And people who didn't recognize me like, oh, I didn't recognize you. I'm like, but if you look at my face, <laughs> my face is the same. I've had the same little round face since I was like 10 years old. It's the same face. So like, if you're not distracted or fascinated by whatever my hair might be doing today, and you just look at my face, look at my eyes, my eyes are the same. And that's how I recognize you because I look at your eyes and I look at your face because I see 75 blonde haired people that come across me every day. But I look at your face. I don't look at your hair. And I don't ask about your hair all the time. <laughs> do, you, do you have any other, not advice, but stereotypes just as they are that hurt or affect kids today or might have hurt you when you were in high school? Any wrong images that we white people have about the black community that, that you'd like us to adjust or try to learn more about? Um, I think one of the things that's important to say right here is that black people are not a monolith, right? So we have very thoughts, very feelings, very emotions. So let me be clear in that I'm not speaking for the black community as a whole, um, but I can speak for what I have experienced and what personally and what and what students have shared with me. Um, One of the things for me that I think is very hurtful was then and is now is how black people are just seen as loud and distracting. Like, you're so loud. Yeah, sometimes black people are loud. Guess what? Sometimes white people are loud too. Uh, (laughs) Like, sometimes you're loud, Colleen. (laughs) But people will say, Colleen's loud. People don't say, well, white people are loud. Look at Colleen being so loud. Like, those white people are always so loud. No, people don't say that. But when, particularly as young kids, I mean, high school, you're still a child. It, It always blows my mind when they're like, you know what? They're so loud. They're so rambunctious. But nobody ever says that about the theater kids that are you know, expressing themselves that are predominantly white, expressing themselves and using hand gestures and laughing. Like no one says, those white kids are so loud. It's when black 
kids, black people are expressing joy, happiness, fun, exuberance. That is like, gosh, so loud. Like they're just so loud that that for me, for kids breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because I'm like, especially, I mean, it's different when I'm in an office setting. I have to tell kids like, you know, you have to keep it down. We're in an office, but I mean, if you're just in the hallways having a good time, like, why is that drawing attention, the hyper-visualization of Black kids doing anything? That, if that could go away, I feel like we'd be on such a, a better path to some equity and some loving each other just more. Like, let, let them be kids. Just like, just like any other group, like any other group of kids when they're having fun, they can be loud and boisterous and laughing and falling on the ground or, you know, just in fun. Like, it's okay for Black people to have fun too. <laughs> have you ever talked to the student body about that? Um, the student body as a whole? No. No. Well, you, know how much, you know how much courage that kind of takes? Well, what I'm thinking is maybe they can just listen to this right here because what you just said – I, I, I don't know, but like, that's, that's important. And if you think that that would make a difference, then they need to hear that. And so, yeah. I mean, well, we just actually finished right before we got on, um, um, the diversity department and the black student union did the first of what they're calling a safe space forum where, you know, the internal community got on a zoom call and today it was just people who identify as black descendants of Africa were able to speak and everyone else had to listen. They couldn't say a word. Um, it was very powerful and we could have probably gone another hour. It was an hour and a half long, at least another hour. And it was even just a small portion of the community, you know, summer. So people aren't really checking their emails, but that's powerful to be able to listen without comment without interjection without but I think like just listen and so this space um the that Mr. Barlow in the in, in the diversity department created just allowed black kids to just speak and say whatever they want to say and then uh, there will be additional forums and there will be a space when the majority population just gets to speak and the minority population just has to listen so um I'm hoping I'm hopeful that those are going to be great bridges. But you know what's interesting, Colleen? In those spaces, you get like-minded people, right? You get the people who are open to learning. And so even as I looked at who was on the call um, just a bit ago, I'm like, man, I really wish X, Y, and Z person was there. And I don't know if X, Y, and Z person were busy at that time or... I think it's probably a combination of busy, like their schedules just didn't match. But there's also, um, <laughs> when you're trying to speak to people who, whose opinions are different than yours, and we have to learn from each other, you have to be present. Like, I can't preach to the choir. You know what I mean? And so it's hard to say, it's hard to force those conversations, but I, they're so necessary, cause, and they're terribly uncomfortable. Like, me telling the entire staff at a staff meeting what I've experienced, just my own personal testimony. Like I was trembling. I don't tremble in front of crowds, like trembling. 
And then I turned around and did it for the board of directors too. And literally tears were coming down my eyes because I was like, this is scary. Like, this is really scary to put yourself out there because historically people who put themselves out there to speak truth to power don't last very long. (laughs) Don't last very long. And kids and kids understand that, too. Or you get ostracized or you're labeled aggressive or divisive or the bad egg. So yeah, it's so hard. Do you do you mean like someone who could have really benefited from listening just like off the top of your head or just in, in thinking back? Yeah. Um, and so then how how do you articulate? Is is this a forum that was taped that can be watched? Um, it was recorded. Um, I know that it's going to be shared with the internal community. So like every, all the current educators and current students received an email inviting them to this. And I believe that the idea is that moving forward along the line, there will be these safe space forums on racial injustice and social injustice that will be open to like the larger cathedral community. But these are happening everywhere. I mean, it's not just us doing these. There are these forums that are happening um, in light of the death of of George Floyd and others that people are having all over the country. Um, I'm, I'm getting in one this evening, um, or actually it's tomorrow, that's being put on on a national level um, where people are having these conversations. And I just think it's, it's important to really, we're not asking to lean into discomfort anymore. Well, I'm not. Let me speak from the eye perspective. I'm not asking people to lean into discomfort anymore. I, it's time to dive. It's time to dive in and it's going to hurt and it's going to be scary and it's going to be uncomfortable and we're going to grow. We're going to grow together and it's going to be awesome, but we can't keep tiptoeing. The water's cold. We know it. Dive in. (laughs) And if we want our world to be better and if we want to raise our kids in the kind of world that they deserve to live in, then, then we have to do that. We have to do the work. So this is kind of such a big and open-ended question, but it's obvious for, for me because I'm a white mom with two boys of mixed race and three white kids. And two of those three white kids don't even yet know the story of why these, they, they don't ask. It's, ju- yeah. it's just what they know. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get there and they'll have questions. And that's a different thing, but I feel like it's my responsibility for Connor and Danny, but not just for Connor and Danny, but for all of them to just obviously learn what I can because Mm -hmm. I've tried to be nice and kind and now I need to do more. We need to do more. And um, I I want to change their perception and my own perception. So how can I do that? I mean, I know that's a huge question. Yeah. I mean, I do have resources. You know, I don't consider myself an expert in any way, shape or form. Let's say that I learn every day. Um, But I do have resources for younger kids, like your younger kids ages, um, because they can. I think for me, I think that we have to stop talking about race like it's a bad thing. Uh Like I am fearfully and wonderfully made with my yellowish skin and my youngest baby with her light brown skin and my oldest baby with her caramel skin 
and my husband with his chocolate skin. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if we're going to be honest about things, we all look different because of, you know, race. We look different because of racism and slavery. And we look different. And that's okay. Like, that's okay. We talked about my mother, my mother and father. I just thank God for them. We talked about race all the time. So it never seemed like oh, a bad thing or it just didn't. It just didn't. Like, they're white and they're black and they're Hispanic and like it just never seemed like a bad thing. So I think having just open conversations and not make it be like, well, let's sit down and talk about racism or let's talk about like it's just normal. Like, you know, we're out in the sun and our skin is changing and like, hey, Dutchie, your skin's gonna get a lot darker. You're gonna be Cameron's color by the end of the summer. And well, and if you stay Cameron, you stay in the sun anymore, you're going to be daddy's color. And, you know, it's just a normal conversation. Um, my father is very fair skinned man. So I'm a very, you know, a white mother and a fair skinned black man. I have fair skin, but I have other biracial friends or full, no, I shouldn't say full black when none of us are full black because, you know, slavery. Um, but I have friends who have two black parents who are lighter than me. You know, so making it just a regular old conversation, I think is is important. Um, and I would say, Colleen, talking to your kids before the world talks to them is important. Definitely. Definitely. That's so I love that you just were talking about that in the sun. Um, Shannon is Tanner, then Ryan and Maddie just just Tanner. And mm-hmm. we've all always just called her Tanny, Shanny and <laughs> Connor and Danny and I in the early days when she was really tan, we just had this theory that maybe Shannon and David threw a little bit in the pot to make like not bridge the gap, but when mm-hmm. for the for those who don't know my story, I feel I feel bad talking about it like they do, but when Shannon was born, it really united us as a family because she was the one that was born after. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about that a lot and then I have to like Connor the other day said he didn't need sunscreen. And I yes, said, <laughs> no, I, why do you think that? And he's like, well, because, and I, and so then I was like, you know what, honey, I, I, I'm going to, I have to get to the bottom of, of the truth, but we're talking about your skin, not your skin color. We're talking about protecting your skin. <laughs> and so I took it upon myself to educate myself. Of course, I don't know if Google's the answer, but I, I'm going to try to do better about that. I, I don't, I don't think that I'm doing a disservice by not talking about Connor and Danny being dark or by, by, by whatever, but I really, really value what you just, everything you just said, because it should just be a conversation. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Like it, it, it really doesn't because there will be a point where it can, it will become a big deal. There will be a conversation that has to from my perspective, that has to be had with these two young men that are brown skin in your home, because unfortunately the world will see them different, you know, and that's heartbreaking as a parent. Yeah, as a parent, that's heartbreaking. Um, So the more it's a normal conversation, then when you have to have the tough conversations, it makes it a little easier, I think. And I will say this too, 
you said Google, you don't know if Google is the answer. So Google's probably not the answer. Google is a great start though. So like in this time in particular, I shouldn't even say in this time because black folks have been tired for a long time. Like when you have friends who are willing to have conversations, then of course, that's a wonderful place to be where they can open dialogue and answer your questions. Or even like me today, I'm, I'm totally open to answering questions. But if you had asked me two weeks ago to do this, I did not have the mental capacity to answer questions. When my white friend texts me just to say, are you okay? I couldn't do what I normally do, which was to say, yeah, I'm okay. Because I'm not okay. In any way, shape or form, I'm not okay. So there will be people who say, hey, white friend, who I usually can talk to about anything. I can't even do it. Look, I can't do it. So I do challenge, I do challenge white folks to start with Google. It'll get you a good start, you know, <laughs> like let's start there because everything I know outside of what um, my fantastic educator, the St. Andrew taught me and what my parents have taught me, maybe I Googled it. And then I said, well, this doesn't make sense. Let me ask somebody about it. Or let me listen to these amazing podcasts where people are sharing um, real life experiences and soak that in and and sit in that discomfort and feel validated in how I feel, right? But we have to, if we're going to really make some change, we have got to stop asking the people who feel oppressed to teach us about being oppressed. Like we ha- we just have to, we just have to stop doing that. Like again, some folks are really open to talking and can do that. And maybe I'm not open to talking last week, but I'm open to talking this week. Um, So yeah, those people that are willing to talk, great. But in the meantime, just a few clicks away. That's a good start on Google. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks. I feel better about it now. Um, So I mentioned before, it would be so cool if the student body could hear that delivery about black kids are so loud, which I, and maybe it's, I don't like to put a number on anything, but it's been a long time since I was in high school and maybe my memories are fuzzy or maybe I just didn't have to worry about it. But is there any, like anything else, because maybe we'll be really, really blessed to have some high school kids tune into this because they want to do better and they want to go back to school this fall I pray to God that that works out for every, I mean, as long as it's healthy and everything and, and be better people and treat people better in the way that maybe not they, everybody deserves to be treated a certain way, but that they want to be treated like anything else that you can, can say to, um, everybody, but also just being in the role that you are in a high school it for parents who could talk to their kids about it, who might be listening or to kids who might be listening. Um, hmm. there's so, it's so much, Colleen. There's so uh, much. Yeah, I know that it seems so, so open-ended. Much. But I will say this. So um, I have been extremely blessed with wonderful mentors that have helped me learn more, not just about diversity and inclusiveness, uh, because it has to be more than that. Like it's more than just different people in the building that we allow to come in. Um, but it's also about equity 
and social justice. So people like Ken Barlow, Ramona Powell um, have been instrumental in introducing me to various resources. And one of those was um, Paul Gorski. Um, I think he's with the Education Equity Institute. I'll give you the name for sure. Um, But Paul Gorski came to Indianapolis two years ago, maybe. Um, When he came to Indianapolis, he said something that I think is really hard. Paul Gorski said that we have to prioritize the marginalized if we're going to get to equity, right, in our schools. And I think that that's very important. And that's hard for kids to hear because you hear like, well, I'm not going to get something. Well, you already have something. Is it okay for Johnny next to you to have it as well? So we're not taking from you. We're giving to the person who doesn't have as much. A real simple example that that I hear from kids all the time. When, When the music changes at the dance, all the white folks stop dancing because now we're listening to black music right? And you're only going to get four, five, six black songs in a dance at a predominantly white school. But sit in what it feels like to say, you know what, let's have some people of color, let's have some black folks on the planning committee and listen to them. When they say, you know what, why don't we do 30 of these songs? You guys pick 30 songs, I'm going to pick 30 songs. And really 10 of them were the same. But Now you have your 10 songs that just you might like and your friend group that might be predominantly white. And I have 10 songs that just my friend group that might be predominantly black like. And now we have a dance where everybody gets a little taste of what they want. People think that that's mind blowing. Like mind blowing that why do I have to say that you get X amount of songs? Because I don't get any songs. So then I don't want to come to the dance. And then the narrative becomes, well, the black kids don't support this endeavor. Well, if you don't feel included, if you don't feel seen, if you don't see anything or few things that are familiar to what you enjoy in a social setting, why would I want to come there? Like that's, why would I want to come? Like, I'm not really a country music fan, so I don't go to the country bar. But if the country bar where my friends are going, who like country music, plays a couple songs that I like, then I'm more apt to do that and enjoy it and come back. And if you're willing to accommodate, if you will, what I'm asking, then when you come into a space that's majority, this population, majority Black people, majority Latinos, majority majority Asians, and you're experiencing things that are culturally significant to that population in a social setting, then yeah, then we're more apt to be like, yeah, put on whatever it is that you like to listen to. You know what I mean? It's just like a, it's mind-blowing to me. It's mind-blowing. So prioritizing the marginalized is an important step to getting us to equity. Not asking for more than what you have, I'm just saying we've been left behind for so long that it's going to take a little extra work to even get us on the same level. And for people in the majority population to understand that and say, I know I'm not trying to take anything from you. I don't want to take anything from you. I just want to be neck and neck with you. I love that. And hearing that from you, 
I will look at things differently now. And it's a, to me, it's really, really simple. It's just common sense and mm-hmm. fairness and the things that we want our kids to learn anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I love that. I'll, uh, we have to prioritize the marginalized. Is that the yeah. quote? Prioritize okay. the marginalized. So I'll, I'll look into to Paul, but that's, a, that's awesome. You have the best answers to every question that I've <laughs> asked. So he's, um, a, he's a gym. He's a Twitter gym. I learn a lot from him. Okay, good. Well, and, and CB and I have both, you know, she, she's really kind of finding them and then telling me I have to listen to certain things. And, mm-hmm. um, but are they the right things? I don't know. I, I, I think that I've learned a lot, but I, I really w- would really care for your, um, if you just can share with us, so I can share with everybody, because if it's anything like what you just told me, these are just such little things that we most certainly can all do. And if we cannot, yeah. then I just don't know what to do with those people. But um, I, and I, there's a part of me that does not want to talk about this very briefly. And then a part of me that thinks it's very important um, for, for you to talk about. If you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. But I just wanted to offer you the opportunity to say a few words about your friend, Chris. And for those who don't know, on May 30th, a Saturday, Chris, who was a beloved member of the Indianapolis community, an all-around great person, was killed during the protests. But if if you would like to talk about that. I invite you to do that. Just tell us briefly about Chris and about what happened because these are the things that happen when people don't feel heard and we need to to continue to listen and get better as a whole. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, Chris Beatty, I have known since I was little. Uh, we went to St. Andrew together. We went to Cathedral together. We went to Indiana University together. So Chris has um, been in some form or fashion a part of my life since I think I was, I don't know, nine, ten years old, eight, nine, ten. Very, very young. Um, and like you said, actually what, what Eric Saunders, who's a cathedral class of 2001, um, called him as a giant. Chris was a giant for Cathedral. He was a giant for Indiana University. He was a giant, giant for the city of Indianapolis. And um, he tragically lost his life on May 30th. Um, I don't really speak to the circumstances of it because I don't know the circumstances of it. You know, um, I've seen enough media reports to know that some of us right and some of us wrong. I don't know what happened other than that he was shot and killed. And um, the perpetrator of that crime took away a giant, took away a giant for, for everybody. Um, Chris was bigger than life. Like the life of the party, the biggest smile, the biggest bear hugs, just a great person, right? Like um, no pretense, no agenda, just, hey, you are who you are. I love your energy. I'm going to give you great energy. So Chris was, um, his family started um, a foundation in his name just after his death. And they started using the hashtag live like Chris the simplest of hashtags, but it means so much. I actually have on a Chris Beatty shirt today. So 
live like Chris is as simple as it gets. Chris loved everybody. He made everyone feel good, right? Everyone thought they were Chris's best friend, which is crazy because then you think about how many lives he touched and everyone said the same thing. Like he just made me feel good about being me. He wanted me to succeed in everything I did. He was always willing to help. He was always um, in the limelight. I never knew him to be in the limelight because he wanted to shine. It was just where he was. He was just such a big personality and a big, a big teddy bear that everybody liked Chris. I don't know that there have been many people in my life that I, especially people younger than me, that I'm like, you know what, I'm going to be like that. And shamefully, shamefully, it wasn't until his passing that I realized like, woo, there's somebody we need to be like. We need to live like Chris. We need to live in the moment. We need to love on our people really hard. We need to celebrate life. We need to just cheer for everybody. Like cheer for everybody. I want you to win. And how can I help you win? Whatever winning looks like. Does winning look like you're an amazing mother? How can I help you win? Does winning look like you want to DJ at the Colts games? How can I help you win? So, yeah, I think the death of Chris, let me be clear. I think the murder of Chris, um, it's rocked so many of us. But I do hold in my heart, especially when I see his closest friends who are doing amazing work to keep his legacy alive. I feel in my heart, let me live like Chris. Chris had friends of every every shade, every color, every walk of life, um, from the hood to the penthouse, from CEOs and celebrity athletes to little old me. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't call you little old you. And he would um, not either, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Chris wasn't somebody I talked to every day, right? He wasn't somebody I talked to every month. But Chris was somebody that I knew I would see everywhere. So walking this earth now, knowing the places that we normally see Chris, that he won't be there, that stings. It stings a lot. But I do carry in my heart that if Chris didn't teach us anything else, he taught us to love each other, to lift each other up, and celebrate, and celebrate. So this past weekend, we buried Chris. His friends did an amazing job of celebrating his life. And I was able to, even in this pandemic, um, connect with his classmates. And I was hanging out with all these younger people, my sister's age. Um but people who just loved Chris and had stories after stories and laughs and drinks and good food. And, and that I know is what Chris would want us to do, but he doesn't just want us to do it as we're mourning and grieving terribly. He wants us to do it. I'm sure here on out to celebrate each other and lift each other up. Thanks for making me cry again, Colleen. I really appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) my specialty obviously <laughs> like Oprah but <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh oh well not not my intention but 
really important because when when everything was going on and and every everybody was down this happens and even if you don't know Chris or you didn't know this story I think it's really neat that you were able to just speak those words because anything that can keep someone alive and shine light on the wonderful person that they are is is going to go on forever. So that's a beautiful thing that you were able to share. And I, I, I think he would approve of, of everything that you have told me and the people listening in today. And so I think that's, that's kind of cool. Not that you're speaking on his behalf or anybody's behalf, but we just need to do better so that these kinds of things don't happen. And obviously there are a lot of takeaways from this conversation. I'm going to ask Jean to send me some resources that I can link and talking about hard things. I've had a couple people reach out to me like, you have a voice, you need to use it. Um, you're raising two boys of color. And and I don't exactly know what that looks like, like for me, but I feel called to, to do something. So if if you wouldn't mind just in a final thought sharing, what can I do, not me specifically or me specifically, to support the Black Lives Matter movement? And then I promise I'm done asking you questions. <laughs> You're fine. Um, final takeaways for action items. I'm a woman with faith. So my first, my first action item is to pray. Um, for those that are people of faith, we have to pray. We, we have to continue to pray and we have to continue to um, and to thank God for the action and the change that is still to come. So praise him in advance. Um, that's my call to action. Also, my call to action is do the hard work. This is hard work and it's not going to be fast. It's not going to be putting a black square on your profile for one day. It's not going to be putting out a Black Lives Matter statement. It's not going to be having one Black person on a podcast to talk about their experience. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be reading and watching documentaries and unlearning some of the things that our school systems have taught us, unlearning some of that and learning the truth about some things, right? And saying, gone, that's why things are like that today. Because back then, when I thought Christopher Columbus discovered America, and he really didn't discover America, this there were people here. Wow, that's how this all evolved. So learning and unlearning, leaning in, diving into that discomfort, and then sharing that with our children. If we make the truth a normal conversation, it's not going to be uncomfortable for those little ones. So again, it doesn't have to be scary and it doesn't have to, I mean, there's language that we can use for young people that makes it on their level. And it's just really telling them the truth about things so that then they grow up and they see people as, as equal. It's not weird to see somebody whose skin is darker than mine or who's in a wheelchair or who can't see or who doesn't have new shoes because they can't afford them. Those things aren't abnormal. Those are just people who have different experiences and I can love them the same and I can socialize with them the same. 
I can marry them and I can have beautiful children of our own the same. So I think that those three things, pray, do the work of learning and unlearning, and then tell the next generation the truth. We're going to be all right. Roger that. <laughs> and, and I'm very thankful for that. I I want to do everything I can, and CB wants to, too. I feel obligated, and I don't know. Maybe you are all... obligated. You are obligated from your place of privilege. Yeah. You are obligated. And that's, your privilege is not your fault, but we are all products of a system, not personal feelings and all of that. That's bigotry and prejudice. The system is a racist system. So we have to work to be anti-racist. We can love each other and we can be kind to each other because that's what we're supposed to do. But the Bible says that faith without works is dead. We have to do the work. We have to do the work from whatever seat you're in. I have a, an amazing seat of privilege. Uh, and sometimes that privilege comes from my fair skin that was gifted to me by my white mother. Sometimes that privilege comes because I know dope people like you that'll let me get on a podcast and share my truth. But whatever seat and whatever lane that you are in, you and I, we are obligated to do better for our kids. Obligated. And as a mother, I know you get that. As parents, I know we get that. We'll do anything for our kids. Well, anything includes fixing this. And we'll do it together. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I'm going to share everything that Jean will share with me in the show notes and we can all listen and we can have conversations and we can we can do better and we have to. So, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> uh, okay, Jean, thank you so 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 much. This was invaluable to me and I know whoever is listening. So, thank, thank you so you. much.